There are certain numbers revealed in uh, the book of Revelation that have created a great amount of debate and superstition and intrigue. Uh, The number 666 would be certainly at the top of that list. Debates are long and loud as to the symbol's meaning. Uh, There are all kinds of uh, notions, rather weird predictions relative to this name or, or this number. Another number that has provoked uh, just as much debate, if not more, is the number 144,000. An amazing array of uh, religious teachings incorporate uh, this number fixating on it as if it's some kind of spiritual key or uh, some kind of clue to unraveling the mysteries of immortality. came across a number in my research, a number of interesting uh, systems of religion. One religion called Realism, which began in 1974, follows the teaching of a former French journalist. It's actually now considered to be the largest UFO religion in the world. They believe human life was the result of extraterrestrials. They also believe that, that uh, there are 144,000 chosen people to continue the human race following uh, the end of the world. Uh, they've actually attracted a number of people, priests and bishops, even from other religions. The religion is popular in France and in South Korea especially. The Church Universal Movement, uh, another uh, extraterrestrial sort of religion, I guess you could say. They believe the Lord of the Flame brought 144,000 souls from the planet Venus to Earth. And you think, okay, those are sort of fringe groups. Well, certainly closer to home, much more popular in America. Certainly not so strange, but I believe errant would be the Seventh-day Adventists who believe that the 144,000 are basically the true believers. They're made known, they're proven genuine by their worship of the Lord only on the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath as their day of worship. They sadly mix Old and New Testament truths together and in the process confuse both. Their official information attempts to tone down uh, this view from the public by stating that the 144,000 are not just Seventh-day Adventists. However, all you have to do is dig a little further, which I had time this week to do, and found out that they, of course, as I already knew, in fact, that, that they believe that only those who worship God on Saturday go to heaven. In fact, they believe that those who worship him on Sunday are simply uh, following what happens to be the mark of the beast. Sunday worship is the mark of the beast. The Seventh-day Adventist believes that the remnant church, that's sort of code word for true believers, are those who worship God on the seventh day, the Sabbath. So effectively, they are the ones going to heaven, and everybody who worships on Sunday is in league with the devil and, and uh, the coming Antichrist. It's amazing to me, especially in light of such clear and plain scripture where in the New Testament era, uh, among other passages, Paul wrote, no one can judge you any longer in regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath observance, Colossians 2.16. Furthermore, Paul makes it very clear that salvation is a gift from God without any contribution of man, Ephesians 2.8. So if salvation is by faith in Christ alone, you have uh, then uh, this belief that you've got to have collective worship on, 
on Saturday would then go against this view if it is indeed in Christ alone. Uh, If you have to worship on Saturday in order to be saved, you are adding to Christ a work of man. The Sabbath sign of covenant relationship with Israel has been in this church age set aside. And we can worship God on any day at any time of the week, either individually or as an assembly. It is our wonderful right having entered through the veil of Christ into the Holy of Holies where we now, as it were, Reside. In fact, by the time you get to Acts chapter 20, uh, the church has selected Sunday, the Lord's Day, they called it, as the day of worship, the special day, of course, on which our Lord rose from the dead. Even more popular and connected to this number, 144,000, are the Jehovah's Witnesses. They claim that the 144,000 were not Jewish Christians in the Revelation account, as we'll see. But they are Jehovah's Witnesses, and they're the ones going to heaven. They comprise the 144,000 number of truly redeemed ones who will be rescued. The problem, of course, with this view becomes apparent and did for them when the number of Jehovah's Witnesses exceeded 144,000. And what does God do with the leftovers? So they revised their doctrine and taught that there there was an earthly band of 144,000 and there is a heavenly band. The heavenly band of witnesses are those for the most part have already died. They're sort of the charter members. But then that problem of simple math uh, reared its head again when they exceeded 288,000 followers. So they created conveniently a third band, a servant band and kind of led me to just want to say that if you believe in heaven, there's no such thing as bands. You're probably in for a real shock because there are three really big ones, according to their belief. You're in for surprise. According to this latest data, they now have a heavenly band, an earthly band, and a servant band. They believe there's just around 9,100 plus, give or take a few, who are part of this number. And then they say, it'll be up. It's amazing how many convoluted problems result from taking this number any other way than its clear, literal, plain announcement, as we'll do. So let's pick our study back up now at Revelation chapter 7 and answer the $144,000 question. (laughs) Now, as you're turning there, you may remember how the previous chapter ended. All of these amazing Tragic, devastating things are happening. And all of unbelieving humanity begins to cry out for the rocks to fall on them and end their lives. And then the chapter ends. In fact, if you look up at verse 17 of chapter 6, it says, The great day of their wrath has come. And here's the question that all of humanity is asking Who is able to stand? Who is able to survive this? Who can possibly survive the terror and the wrath of the Lamb? And what God will do in chapter 7 in John's vision for us is pause. He'll, as it were, push the pause button and give us an interlude. In fact, if your Bible doesn't have that little outline notation, you might add that. Just before chapter 7 begins, the word pause or perhaps the word interlude. It's a parenthesis. It's a a pause in the chronological progression of these seals. 
And the reason it is here is to give us the status of the gospel. To give us the status of those on planet earth. And certainly those who believe the gospel. And we'll discover a special group of people who are not only surviving, but thriving. Notice how John opens verse 1. He says, after this, that's his way of saying he now has a new vision. I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. Now let me stop here briefly. This is one of those verses that liberals use to mock the Bible, or they did. Poor John, those poor Christians, they're stuck with a book and an ancient apostle who obviously thinks the world is flat. It has four corners. I mean, can you believe that? Angels are standing at the four corners of the earth. Now we can understand the four winds. The obvious reference to winds from north, south, east, and west. But this four corners thing, I mean, now you're, you're stuck with pre-scientific understanding and you've got to hang your head in the presence of modern science and say, oh, oh shucks, John, I, John didn't know science. I mean, it's in the scientific book. Don't hold it against him or us. Let's just kind of skip that verse. What I found fascinating is that modern science has recently proven this remarkably true. Science of geodesy. Geodesy is a branch of applied mathematics which determines the size and shape of of the earth. In recent years, geodetic measurements have actually proven the earth really does have four corners called projections or protuberances, they call it, standing out from the basic spherical shape of the earth. Let me, let me read you what one scientist wrote. The earth is not really a perfect sphere after all. It's slightly flattened at the poles and it has an equatorial bulge caused by earth's rotation. It has a bulge around its middle. How many of you can identify? Well, let's just skip past that part. <laughs> Never mind. This author writes, because of the the equatorial bulge and the flattening at the poles, you have four corner protrusions, one at each pole and two at opposite ends of the strategic equatorial diameter. Imagine that. But listen, there's more here. He says, and I quote him, these four corners play a role in controlling the great atmospheric circulation which governs the winds of the earth. And I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding the four winds is actually way ahead of his scientific times. Not behind ours. Now these four angels are stationed at each pole then along the equator to do one thing, restrain the winds, often referred to as the judgment of God's destroying wind or wrath. Now notice... In verse 1, again, so that the wind, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. So at the outset of this interlude, this pause, there is a calming of hurricanes and tornadoes and tsunamis and a host of other disturbances that have been sweeping across the planet in this previous sixth seal. Now there's a calm. 
Would you carefully note again that the wind will not at this point disturb the earth, just temporarily, or the sea, or the trees? Now, I want to make sort of a sidebar comment, but I think it's important here at this point in time. In other words, the churning bodies of water and and the collapsing of trees has now ceased. But what I want to point out to you is the presence of water and the presence of trees. Let me point out something contrary to public opinion. Near the end of human history, as we know it, prior to the coming kingdom, there are plentiful bodies of water and plenty of trees. We evidently didn't run out. In fact, chapter 8 is going to unroll even more terror upon the planet. You look at verse 7, and it says there a third of the trees will burn up, and all the green grass will burn up. We've even got green Can you imagine green grass? Evidently my lawn isn't part of this picture. (laughs) The next verse tells us that the springs of water and the rivers are going to be poisoned by God's uh, judgment. So evidently there are rivers and there are fresh springs of water. There is green grass. There are trees. Listen, this planet belongs to God. And God will sustain his planet and his creation, and his human race, and the animal kingdom until he moves with judgment to wipe most of it out. Now that doesn't mean, don't misunderstand me, that doesn't mean we aren't supposed to manage earth well. It's our duty and delight. It doesn't mean that we're not to take care of her or work to enhance her beauty and resources. But that is vastly different from believing that we must save the planet. Has it ever occurred to you that God has never asked you or me to save the planet? What it does mean is that the sustaining, the longevity, the resources of planet Earth are ultimately in the hands and providence of God. And you get through human history and you come to the time of tribulation and not long after that the kingdom and then he's going to recreate it all. Life is still sustained with trees and grass and rivers and springs of water. They're not only present, but they are in parts of the earth flourishing. Imagine God has been able to somehow survive the hole in the ozone layer. He has somehow caused earth to survive in spite of Those terrible human beings who do nothing more than consume oxygen and drink water and fell trees and cause the population to explode and create a carbon footprint and dare I say global warming. Somehow he has kept it together. I have been in an airplane with all four of my children at some point in time when they were younger. And as soon as I got up, Around 20,000 feet, I said to each of them, I had them at the window seat, great sacrifice on my part, put them there at the window seat. I'd, said, I'd say to them, look down, what do you see? Trees. Oh? Based on the latest thing you've heard, I thought we were running out. Oh, no, Daddy, there are a lot of trees. What else do you see? Oh, I see water, lakes. And throughout the course of the trip, I'd have them look out. What do you see? as they understood all of a sudden that most of the planet is uninhabited. Trees. Ladies and gentlemen, this might not be politically correct, and you know I care deeply about that. (laughs) 
Planet Earth is ultimately under the jurisdiction and protection of God. And he will cause it to survive and flourish until he's finished. Whether you have a lot of children or few children. Whether you cut down a tree or plant a tree. Whether you recycle or not. And I'm not against recycling. What I don't believe is that any of that should be attached biblically, nor is it, with anything mankind does as it relates to saving the planet. The view that mankind is responsible to save the planet is an affront to the sovereignty of God. And that's the truth according to this word. Now, Paul wrote... I'm not running for office, as you can tell, so save it. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, 26, the earth belongs to the Lord. Let's just be reminded of that. The earth belongs to the Lord and everything that is in it it belongs to him. It's our delight to take care of it as he allows us to. But it's his and it will survive until he is ready to recreate it anew. So here in verse 1, Chapter 7, you have four angels serving God by corralling the winds of judgment. Now notice another angel appears in verse 2. and I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, that is from the east. Wonderful things happen from the east. Having the seal of the living God. Now listen to the message of this angel. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. This sphragus, this seal, the Greek word, is a reference to the mark made by a signet ring that an Eastern monarch would use to, he'd, he'd press it into clay or wax. It would represent his authority. The signet ring was given to Joseph, you remember, when he was uh, promoted as second to Pharaoh himself, now serving as prime minister of Genesis 41 42. So these 144,000 as it were, have the authority and power of the living God. Now, who are they? Verse 4. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. That is, every tribe mentioned below. One is missing from the list, more than likely because of his introduction of idolatry. He will show up later as time progresses. So these are from the sons of Israel. Now two facts are easily presented to us which help us answer that $144,000 question. And it really isn't all that mysterious. We don't need any Bible code. We don't need any extraterrestrial help. We don't have to torture the text. These are simple facts. Fact number one, these are Jews. This is not the church. This is clearly a reference to literal, historic, ethnic Jews from the sons of Israel. Some authors have even suggested, and they're amillennial, they want the church to go through the tribulation. They, they've even suggested this has to be the church. And, and since it's so clearly Jewish that this paragraph had to have been added later to Revelation because it, it just can't be the sons of Israel. No, this isn't the church, friends. In fact, if national Israel instead of the church is understood here in this paragraph, as it plainly states, the difficulties dissolve 
But if you try to make this the church, then you've got a real problem. You've got a real problem. Twelve tribes are itemized here, and not the church. In fact, whenever anybody says the church is part of the 144,000, all you need to do is ask them, which tribe? And that may settle it. These are Jews from the tribes of the sons of Israel. By the way, this also strikes a death blow at the belief that Jewish tribes have been lost. We got these lost tribes that have somehow melded into the European families. There, there is no such thing as lost tribes. Not in the Old Testament and certainly not in the New Testament. God doesn't lose things. I lose things. I went through a panic this morning trying to find my keys. Couldn't find my keys. I lose my glasses, find them on my nose. That's very embarrassing when that happens. I'm getting old. I lose. God doesn't, he certainly doesn't lose people. There there are no lost tribes. There are the lost boys. That's Peter Pan. That's not biblical. I hate hate to break it to you. That's not in the Bible. God has not lost any tribes along the way. In fact, they're going to show up at one point or another in the book of Revelation. So fact number one, they're Jews. Fact number two, Guess how many of them there are? Just take a guess. The literal Greek translation, let me give it to you. Write it down. 144,000. Okay? That's how many. No need for confusion. This isn't a figurative number. In fact, lest anybody think it's a mere symbol, John gives an itemized list of tribes, 12,000 from each of the tribes listed, and then the tribes are listed with the number 12,000 over and over and over again. Listen to this. If this number in Revelation is figurative, as the amillennialist says, there is absolutely no ground upon which to stand to ever take any number in Revelation literally. If this isn't, There's a great deal of confusion created when people sort of make this number meaningless. It's just some random number. They create even greater confusion when they spiritualize it all away because they got to stuff the church in there somehow so it's really not Jews and it's really not 144,000. It's the church. Or it's a remnant of the church who worships on Saturday. Or it is the church of 144,000. That's all you get, I guess, unless we create other bands. Or these are a special group of people that are allowed by extraterrestrials to survive. You get in all kinds of strange confusion. Those viewpoints, by the way, are philosophical. They are not exegetical. This text leaves no doubt that the number is definite and the people unmistakable. From these Jewish tribes, each 12,000 are chosen by God to serve them as special ambassadors, supernaturally used by God. And protected from the Antichrist. And they're given, the text tells us, a a visible, physical mark on their forehead. So now we know how many there are and who they are. Now, just why are they sealed? What exactly does does that mean? Well, let me have you turn to a paragraph in Revelation chapter 14, which gives us more details about these 144,000 Jewish believers, and so we're going to cover this paragraph now at this point in our study. Verse 1 says, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion. This is on the earth, not in heaven. And with him, 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. Now we're told what that seal looks like. And I heard a voice From heaven, further evidence that are on earth, 
This isn't the church in heaven. These are Jewish believers on earth. Now let me make four observations that we can call from these texts about these individuals. The first observation, let me give it to you and then we'll look at the text again. The the 144,000 are sealed as the sovereign Lord's possession. Now look again. They had the name of God, the Son as it were, and the Father on their foreheads. Now that immediately strikes us as very strange. I mean, to have a name written or maybe artistically designed as some kind of insignia on your forehead, that that strikes us as, as strange, but not in John's generation, not in his. It was not uncommon, in fact, for a soldier or a guild member in John's day to have a, a bodily mark as a devotee. It, was, it wasn't unusual for people to receive a mark on the forehead as a consecration to a deity. The forehead was chosen because it was so conspicuous. You can't miss it. You can't hide it. So the pagan religions of John's day often did this as a mark of devotion to their God. It wasn't unusual in John's generation. In fact, it really isn't unusual in our world today. Today in India... Millions and millions of Hindus attach great importance to this ornamental mark on their forehead between the eyebrows. Perhaps you've seen that's called a bindi, I believe it's pronounced. Usually a small, round, colorful mark. The, the poorer classes, will, uh, the woman will dip her finger in some sort of dye and try to make a perfect circle. And those who are wealthy will have jewels of some sort on their forehead. It's considered a touch of beauty, but... Throughout much of India, it's actually required for married women. A red dot on the forehead is a sign of marriage. It guarantees her social status. It performs sort of the same function as a wedding ring to these millions of women. The insignia declares she belongs to another. And her loyalty and devotion is to her husband. By the way, all the Antichrist is going to do later on is mimic this in blasphemy. By having his own mark applied to those who are loyal to him. Well, for the 144,000, this mark on their forehead that is visible, it is physical, it's seen. It signifies to the world that they belong to Almighty God, which now raises a, a big problem. Because people who belong to Christ aren't loved during the tribulation. Which leads me to the second characteristic, and that is that the 144,000 are sealed with supernatural protection. They are unable to be put to death. In fact, chapter 7, they're sealed. Now we see them in chapter 14. They're standing with the Lord on the planet. Uh, Not uh, too much time hence, the kingdom is going to be ushered in at the end of the tribulation. And not one of them has died. Not one of them is lost. All of them. Even though they openly declare their allegiance to Christ are alive. John Phillips, the wonderful British expositor, comments, and I quote him on this particular point. He says, the mobilized armies of the earth and will not be able to touch a hair of the heads of these sealed ones. The concentration camps and torture chambers of the beasts, fearful inquisition will leave them unscathed. The fire will not kindle upon them. The secret police will have dossiers as thick as prison walls, but they will be unable to harm them. 
The seal of God rests upon them and they are secured come what may. They will be a living proof to the devil that not only is his secular power strictly limited by divine decree, in the end he cannot succeed. If he cannot conquer these Jews, he cannot possibly win in the end. They are sealed as the sovereign's possession. They are sealed with supernatural protection. Number three, they are sealed with spiritual power. More than likely, those things that will accompany their wanderings about and no telling what the enemy will try to do to take their lives and he won't be able to do it. It's going to be miraculous and marvelous. Many of those who believe who are going to be singing in chapter 7, and we'll look at next session, will have come to Christ by the effective, amazing, powerful witness of these 144,000 missionaries. Satan will no doubt attempt to kill these fearless preachers, but God will not permit them to be harmed. They're going to be a perpetual thorn in the side of Satan and his puppet, Antichrist. Frankly, there's simply no way for us to imagine their delegated power as they travel the globe preaching for Christ. They are literally unstoppable and indestructible. Fourth, the 144,000 are sealed as a symbolic pledge. John calls them here in chapter 14, verse 4, near the end. He says... Uh, They are the first fruits to God and uh, to the Lamb. The first fruits. They represent the pledge and the promise of God to redeem ethnic Israel to himself. And these 144,000 represent the beginning of this amazing harvest. The Apostle Paul, by the way, used the same phrase when he referred to the new believers in the household of Stenophilus. He said, they are the first fruits of Of all of Achaia. In other words, they're the first to believe of all of this region. So here, these 144,000 are referred to as the first fruits of all those who will believe, sort of as a pledge that God is going to bring ethnic Israel to saving faith, which is primarily the purpose of the tribulation. God will keep his word, God will redeem the Jew no matter what happens, no matter. Uh, the hatred or the demonically inspired holocausts against them, which will be unleashed like never before. The existence of the Jew, even today, is a testimony of the pledge of God. There are ethnic Jews alive today who still exist. It's a mark of God keeping his promise. Listen, you have never met a Ninevite, have you? Right? Never. You've never met an Amalekite, Gergeshite, Hittite, and I like to say all those other mosquito bites. You've never met any of them, but you've met a Jew. In 1936, the mayor of New York faced an interesting dilemma. Anti-Jewish sentiment was at fever pitch in Germany, and Nazi Germany was known for, of course, its hatred of Jews, and they believed Jews were swine. They believed that they were the off-scouring of humanity and unworthy to live. The mayor of New York, Mayor LaGuardia, at an airport named after him later, was confronted with a a difficult dilemma. A high-ranking diplomat from Nazi Germany was coming to New York for a series of meetings, and it was the mayor's responsibility to provide him 
with protection. Now, of course, New York was heavily populated with Jewish immigrants. This was no favored place for him to come. And uh, he himself, the mayor, considered Nazism repulsive. So what was he to do? Came up with an interesting idea to communicate a message that Nazi Germany had it all wrong. These were actually good people. And so he handpicked the bodyguard from among the New York City police squad and made sure that every one of the men he picked were Jews. So what you have in effect then with this wonderful irony is this German diplomat who hated Jews would owe his life to their protection and safekeeping. Listen, there is coming a day when the hatred of the world will be pointed at the Christian and the Jew. Can you imagine Jews who are Christians? How much the Antichrist will hate them? So they are sealed as it were, the sovereign's possession with supernatural protection, with spiritual power, and as a, as a symbolic pledge. You know, it kind of struck me as I came to the end of studying the profile of these men, these Jewish men who travel the globe, discipling new converts, preaching the gospel, is that in a way, in this church age, we've been sealed internally, spiritually. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, you were sealed in Christ by the Holy Spirit of promise. Ephesians 1.13. Further in chapter 4, he wrote, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you've been sealed for the day of redemption. God isn't going to lose any of you either or me. He will fulfill his promise to us at the end of this age and either rapturing us or resurrecting us. We are the sovereign's possession. We have also been empowered to serve him, for he's given us everything necessary for life and godliness. And we're going to reign with him in his coming glory. It also struck me that the lifestyle and the character of these Jewish witnesses should be, in large part, our own character and witness. They were physically marked with a seal for that unique purpose and era, We are spiritually marked by the Holy Spirit for our specific ministry and era. And and some of the characteristics that are seen in their lives ought to be in ours. And let me quickly give you four of them. First, these were marked by purity. Notice what it says of them in chapter 14, verse 4. It says, these are the ones who have not been defiled with women. They've not been defiled with women. This doesn't mean that these men were unmarried, since Hebrews 13.4 declares the marriage bed undefiling. It could mean that these men were virgin, single men. But more than likely, it's simply a reference that they kept themselves away from the sexual promiscuity that runs rampant during the tribulation. The worship of the Antichrist is going to be unspeakably vile and perverse, with divine restraint removed, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, uh, the unbelieving world abandoned by God, a sin is going to be released like a flood inundating the world. And the world is going to literally live out the debauchery of Romans chapter 1 like no culture has ever done before. Yet these men shine like beacons of purity in the midst of all this filth. 
John writes further in verse 4 that they have kept themselves chaste. The same word for chaste here, parthenos, is used by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, to refer to the bride, the chaste bride of Christ. This is a challenge, ladies and gentlemen, to, to you and to me, the church today, to live sexually pure lives. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, for this is the will of God that you abstain from what? Sexual immorality. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, that sexual activity before marriage and to anybody you're not married to ever. He wrote to Timothy, flee youthful lusts. 2 Timothy 2.22, which is even a broader world. For our world, it would involve the internet. Flee it. He wrote to the, uh, to the Corinthians, flee immorality, specifically related to the use of their bodies. 1 Corinthians 6.13. Has it ever occurred to you that God never commanded you to fight sexual temptation? Never. He simply told you to what? Run. Run. Flee. Maybe the word from God to you today has nothing to do with 144,000 in his general scope. Maybe you need to hear somebody say to you, run. The mark of a witness for Jesus Christ today as well should be one who fears sexual misconduct. He or she runs from it, abhors it, stays away from it. Perhaps our testimony for Christ so suffers in our culture today because the Christian is no more distinctive in his relationships than the unbeliever. It is the great day, a great era, to recapture what Robert Murray McShane, the godly 19th century Scottish preacher, said, and I quote, It is not great talents that God blesses so much as great likeness to Christ. A holy minister, a holy Christian, is a powerful weapon in the hand of God. These witnesses are marked not only by sexual purity. Secondly, they're marked by loyalty. Look at verse 4 again. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. In other words, their priority is the will of God. Henry Blackaby made popular a statement I thought of as I looked at this text where he said it this way. He said, the wise Christian discovers where God is at work and simply joins him there. This is no strings attached loyalty. This is placing no condition upon The will of God for your life. This is commitment. This is passionate loyalty as these were, so should we be to Christ and his redemptive cause. Uh, It was interesting. I had lunch uh, with some men, a couple of uh, Supreme Court justices from the state of North Carolina. I'm not in any trouble. I want you to know that. But we had lunch together. They wanted to tour facilities and see Shepherd Seminary, having read about it in the News and Observer. During our lunch, one of the justices was telling us uh, about his son who served as a uh, Marine and how tough they really were. It's fascinating to hear him tell the stories about his son. He said his son loves every bit of it. He's volunteered for the toughest assignments. He said, my son has learned to sleep standing up, leaning against a tree. Couldn't help but think that's nothing. I see people sleeping, sitting up in a chair every Sunday morning. But I didn't say that. (laughs) I know who you are. 
The justice said that his son has a poncho given to him as part of the equipment to wear when it's raining. And he said he takes that poncho and he uses it when it rains to cover his equipment up. And he sits in the rain. These 144,000 are, I guess you could say, the Messiah's Marines. Marked by loyalty. Third, they're marked by honesty. John writes in verse 5, and no lie was found in their mouth. Listen, isn't that what a good witness is supposed to do? Tell the truth, the whole truth, and what? Nothing but the truth. So they're good witnesses. The believer's life even now should be as good as his handshake. Marked by honesty. A life without fine print. And by the way, that'll be a marked contrast during the tribulation. And it is even today. To those who are governed by Satan, whose native tongue, John 8, 44 says, is what? Lying. He just can't tell the truth. One more. They're marked by a sense of, of destiny. The word John uses at the end of this paragraph, when he writes at the end of verse 5, he says, no lie was found in their mouth, they are blameless. It's a unique word. It's not the same word that appears in the qualifications of an elder or deacon. 1 Timothy 3. It's a different word. It's an eschatological blamelessness, looking to the day when, when they will stand before God blamelessly, having been then justified. It's not a picture of perfection or sinlessness. It's a picture of justification. With their slates wiped clean. Jude uses the same word in his little epistle. When he says, on that day, we will all stand in the presence of God's glory, blameless, with great joy. In other words, they, these 144,000, served Christ, not on the basis of their perfection, but the perfection of the justifying Lord. And so we also today, in a way, in fact, John will use it to speak of us, serve Christ, not because we're perfect, but because we are in the perfect one. Because we are in the perfected one, as it were, or the perfect one. His perfection stands in for us as our slate is wiped clean. The question remains, can people see the mark the markings of God in us? I mean, do we bear the marks of God's witnesses in our daily lives? No, it isn't physical. It isn't on our forehead. It's internal. We've been sealed by the Spirit. But can that be seen to our world? Oh, that we would mirror the lives of these with purity and loyalty and, and honesty and a sense of destiny that one day we're going to stand before our leader and our Lord? Would that we would join, as it were, the Messiah's Marines and accept hardship and difficulty and take seriously the call of God to testify of his grace and his gospel? Would that we would answer the call of John Wesley who once said a century plus ago, give me a hundred believers who love nothing but God and hate nothing but sin and I will shake the world for Christ. May that be us.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for the description of these 144,000 passionately committed Jewish men who stand as a testimony of your redemptive promise to the nation Israel and stand as a challenge to the church today in this era, in this dispensation, to be marked, yes, inwardly by your spirit, but to demonstrate it so that it can't be missed. And how? With purity, with honesty, with loyalty, and a sense of destiny that we belong to you and before you, we will one day give an account of our service and our lives. Perhaps God has spoken to your heart by His Spirit. You belong to Him, but maybe there's an area where you need to do some work. Maybe there's a relationship needs to end. Maybe phone calls have to be made. Maybe expense reports have to be redone. They're dishonest. Maybe that testimony that's never let out, that's always kept inside, you ask God for the courage and the willingness to speak his name, to let it be known that you belong to him. Take just a moment and talk to him in whatever way his spirit has provoked you. Thank you for the joy and the challenge and the encouragement of the assembly, Father, where your spirit binds us around the truth of what you've said and provokes us, prods us on to love and good works. Would you allow us in this culture, decaying though it is, misguided though it is, confused though it is, to be beacons of purity and honesty and loyalty and destiny. To live, simply put, to do whatever you want us to do, however mundane, however difficult, to do it. For your glory's sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.